the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. Greetings and welcome to Connected for AV Nation TV. And my name is David Danto, your host. Um, and this is a special episode, a little different from what we've done in the past. Um, I've got a couple of uh, longtime industry colleagues on the line with me. And we're going to talk about, um, you know, we're, we're in July of, uh, of uh, 2019. And uh, 50 years ago, we heard those tremendous words, you know, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. You know, where were we? What wh- where were we doing? What were we looking at? What did that mean to, for us and our lives um what were all the technology benefits to come out of that moon landing um and then you know how can we kind of look ahead and see what kind of technology pieces are coming out of where we're going in the future and look at our you know moonshot or manhattan project whatever else is going on in the collaboration space so first let me let my guests introduce themselves to you um uh, casey king is with me casey you want to start and tell us a little bit about your history in the industry yeah sure yeah thanks a lot for uh, inviting me uh, david uh so I've been at Poly for about eight months, uh, but I've been in the industry for quite a bit, bit longer than that. I've had the uh, the luxury of being able to work with some fantastic teams over the years, and I've also been able to work on both consumer-led products as well as enterprise products. So most recently, I came from a a uh, startup company headquartered in Oslo, a small company called Hudley. We made some intelligent uh, camera products that were you know, really based off of neural computing and uh, machine learning, so uh, which I think is top of mind of where the industry is going. Before that, I was uh, the CTO at a another company that used to compete against Poly and, and uh, Cisco called Life Size Communications. I was the CTO there for over 10 years, and uh, and that was a great run. Did a lot of different projects and products that I think moved the industry uh, t- toward where we are today. I was at Apple Computer for 13 and a half years, where I really got the, uh, you know, really got the bug around, uh, you know, video frameworks. I was worked as part of the QuickTime team for, uh, from day zero for 10 years until I left. So, so that was uh, instrumental on, you know, kind of large scale projects. It's probably still being used by over a billion people uh, today, 20, 20 plus years later. And then I do have an origin story, you know, going back into the Space Center, but, you know, hopefully we'll kind of get to that. But my first job was uh, at a, a college was was with a company called Singer Link. And, uh, you know, so I worked right down by JSC and and I worked on the F-16 flight program there, but uh, in the simulator programs where these these are just incredible machines that, you know, were, you know, cost tens of millions of dollars. We also supplied the, uh, sh- the shuttle simulator as well as a lot of other simulators to NASA. Um, but um, but yeah, I've got some more stories about NASA from when I was a kid. So so hopefully we'll get to that you know right after this. Oh, absolutely! I can't wait. So uh, while while we're waiting for that one, Tim, why don't you introduce yourself and give us a little bit of the history of how you've grown up in this industry? Hey, Dave. Good. Sounds great. Uh, Casey, good to see you again. Uh, so I've been at uh, Poly now for about 23 months. So uh, not quite two years yet. Um, came over, so my job here, as you as you guys know, is uh, running the group uh, product uh, management team. So anything that's in a conference room, so the video or speakerphones, etc. Uh, prior to coming here, uh, my my uh, last gig was with a company, a large company called Yamaha Corporation, 
that had acquired a small startup called Reva Labs. And that was that was pretty exciting because we were on the forefront of developing some of the USB peripherals that were going into the conference room, larger scale spaces that were enabling the sort of the vast transition into the cloud. So uh, some of the you know, PC-based architecture is now leveraging something that's a little bigger than a personal device, uh, USB connected, to scale into different rooms. So that was a great experience to, to bring into to this life, uh, having you know, worked with a lot of the guys, Google and Zoom and Microsoft and LogMeIn and et cetera, uh, and engaging and figuring out what's the right solution space and what they're looking for uh, enabling in those rooms. Prior to that, I had uh, founded my own company called Vigo Communications, which was uh, really a, a view of trying to transform just a simple video experience to a mobile video experience. So we built a, a four-foot-tall robot and kind of invented the robotic telepresence market, which now uh, uh, Beam is still actively driving with uh, their solutions. Um, so I did that, you know, started in... 07 and founded that from scratch uh, with a couple partners out of iRobot. So that was a lot of fun. That was a great experience to build that. Uh, unfortunately, 08 and 09 and 010 happened. So there wasn't a lot of uh, market activity during those years as things were going the wrong way, but it was still a great experience. Uh, and then before that was uh, Polycom and PictureTel for me. So I grew up, you know, in the uh, 90s at PictureTel developed a huge amount of those uh, video conferencing systems. Uh, I was a CTO of PictureTel towards the end. We then sold it to Polycom. I stayed at Polycom for three years, the CTO of the video division at Polycom. Um, so did, did a lot of the forefront work on HD uh, during those Polycom years, and prior to that I was just building, you know, the, the, getting the market going, I guess. Uh, and then, like uh, Casey said, I started out actually uh, building defense products uh, with uh, with with that team in my early years. Uh, so that was pretty cool to build uh, the you know rocket uh, defense systems and and all the different products that we were working on uh, for the military and for the government. So not dissimilar, probably very probably very different than the things you were working on simulate, simulators, uh, Casey, but. Uh, it was pretty cool stuff. That yeah, no strike evil really from you. Gotcha. Um, I mean, awesome. that's why this is such a cool conversation to have because, you know, the three of us are colleagues at the same company right now, which is which is awesome and terrific. But we've also known each other probably, you know, in the neighborhood of 20 years as well as so many of other people that have come together and joined us, which is really cool. And, and I wanted to get together because we are celebrating, you know, the, the, the moon landing. Um, Buzz Aldrin, who I had the honor of meeting a few years ago, and Neil Armstrong and Michael Collins, as I recall, was the, was the flight crew going Michael up there Collins, in, in, yep. in 69. And um, I haven't met them, but I, I did get to meet Buzz. And, um, and, and, you know, you think about all the things that came from that type of, of, of teamwork and working together, you know, the, uh, with, with President Kennedy at the time setting the nation on a goal to, to reach the moon in that decade, or decade is however he wanted to pronounce it. But, you know, the things that came out of that, you know, the, that didn't exist, things like, you know, scratch-resistant lenses, 
didn't exist until you know they realized when you're going to the moon you had this visor on you know as soon as you start rubbing it with something you wouldn't be able to see anything so they had to come up with science to develop that um the space blanket that we all use nowadays today you know was 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 that came out of how do we make a lightweight something that keeps warmth in i didn't realize this that the dust buster came out of the Apollo missions. Um, that was uh, Black & Decker's efforts at creating that high-power portable drill that could drill into the moon's surface, and they then took that engine and developed it and it became the commercial Dustbuster product, which I thought was really amazing. I was surprised to find out, you know, 2020 hindsight, I was surprised to find out that the um, that Velcro didn't come from the Apollo missions. People thought thought that it did. It was in, pl- it was in use. It just became extensively used for, for some of the, the, the space shots. Um, and then there's also that other um, non-true uh, story that um, if you go to Snopes.com, you can read about it. The idea that you know the Americans spent you know millions of dollars creating a, a pen that could write upside down, and the Russians just used a pencil. Um, that's by the way completely not true. And the Fisher Space Pen was developed separate, not part of what NASA was doing. But you know it's it's really it's interesting to look into the mythology around how the that that effort, how that kind of work led to some of the technology breakthroughs that we were going through now. So, so, so Casey, tell us some of the stories that you've been experienced with, because if you've got them, we want to hear them. Well, I mean, the the biggest story for me is, I mean, when when we landed on the moon was uh, in 1969, and I was nine years old, and I I grew up uh, ten miles from the Johnson Space Center. Um, near Clear Lake, which is out just outside of, of Houston, and so the major and and so we also lived maybe 10 miles from the Houston Ship Channel. So there was this big mix of rocket scientists in my neighborhood, people that worked at NASA, and then also people that worked in the petrochemical you know industry. So it was a highly technical kind of cohort of people that were you know mentors and influencers for me. And I mean it was. You know, we'd go blow up rockets and, you know, Estes, you know, solid rocket boosters. We'd fly radio control planes, crash them, rebuild them. You know, sport aviation was a really big influence for me. I ended up building my own airplane, uh, you know, after the fact. But, you know, the, where I hung out, even as a kid, I mean, there's just such an influence from, from people that were in the space program. I mean, my neighbors to the left, to the right, across the street, I mean, all worked at NASA. So, so I mean, I really credit, you know, kind of my journey from a technology point of view that goes all the way directly back to that. So, you know, not just the products that kind of came out of the space program, but to me, the biggest thing that came, that came out of it was just, you know, what was possible, you know, being able to take these impossible ideas and, you know, assemble a group of people with the focus, you know, to kind of go after these, you know, just seemingly impossible dreams. And then being able to succeed with that, you know, with, you know, it was a large team of people at NASA, but they were broken down into small, you know, into small groups. You know, you look at the compute that was available to them versus the compute that's available to us today. And it's just mind mind blowing that, you know, what we have, you know, and carry around in our pockets, it was far more than what, you know, they had to send somebody up into space and, and all the way to the moon and back again. So, so to me, it was just this, uh, you know, this quest for innovation, this quest for just, uh, you know, crazy, crazy dreams that, you know, kind of came out um, that was just inspiring, you know, not only to me, but I mean, if you look back at some of the newsreels on how how many people around the world, you know, watched, you know, watched this journey, um, I think it was just inspiring for, you know, an entire generation of people, you know, that grew up. But but without a doubt, I mean, the whole reason I went into electrical engineering and I mean, it was the golden age of aerospace engineering back in the 50s and 60s. 
And I think, you know, Tim and I will probably agree that, you know, the, the golden era for us, you know, in the 80s and 90s and 2000s was, you know, the, the advent of, you know, semiconductors and these compute, you know, computational devices, the PC and the, the phones and the iPads and, you know, all this, you know, all, all these crazy things that, you know, we couldn't have even imagined back then. Um, you know, so that's, you know, aerospace engineers, engineering in the 50s and 60s, you know, electrical engineering, computer science, you know, since then, and, and a whole lot of good things to look forward to going forward. So, yeah. And, you know, that was something I didn't know about you that we share in common. I was part of the SDS Model Rocket Club in high school. I think the last one that I built was a Gyrock. I don't think I ever launched it. I think I dropped it off the sixth floor of a skyscraper just to see it spin all the way down. But, all right, so that's – we also we have balsa knives in the basement somewhere. That's good to know. And any, any reminiscences or stories from you, Tim? Yeah, so, so I was just thinking about – you know, when I was a kid, a couple of years younger than uh, Casey, but I remember for years I had the poster of Michael and Buzz and Neil on my wall. I mean, that, that was like an iconic, just, you know, I don't know if you guys had that, the three of them standing there. That was just like every one of my friends, we all had that poster. It was like the, the so inspiring to, to think about those guys. And then, and then one of the my other memories is my family going down to the space center and seeing the Saturn V rocket, and just how enormous that rocket was, and it was, for all intents and purposes, right, the shut the actual lunar module so small, and on top of this fundamentally controlled explosion, right, that that was all it really was was a bomb that they were controlling <laughs> with enormous amount of fuel. To try to get out of the atmosphere, I don't think I'm not even sure there's a rocket as big as that even today that that exists. That those are just phenomenal uh, engineering feats uh, going back in you know to, in that time when it was you know so uh, like like Casey is saying so limited horsepower processing and it just had to work right. Keep it simple, make it work, drive that into the you know drive that into every aspect of the design. Right. Don't. Everything was tested, tested, tested. And I had a few uncles myself that worked in NASA for years, and they would tell me stories of just how you know, it was all about the details. It was all about testing. It was all about just driving that philosophy into the organization, about making sure this the, the product was going to work. It was about lives, right? It was about really making sure that the quality was there. And uh, yeah, and some, you know. Like, no, I was just going to agree with you. Design for the target, right? What do you got to do? Design for that. Don't get fancy. Well, as, as engineers, I think, you know, I'm speaking for myself, but I'm sure it's kind of universal as we all, I grew up in this era that was defined in terms of mission management. You know, I guess it would be, you know, uh, is it Kranz who did it there or whoever was the, 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 the you know, the idea of, you know, what let, let's make sure that we have each person managing a piece of this and we all have to have, you know, what's the go, no go point and, 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 and how do we, how do we work together to achieve this goal? And then, you know, the successful failure, you know, of the Apollo 13 
13 mission, the idea is, all right, you know, something's gone wrong in the middle. How do we determine what the status is? How do we fix the situation? How do we revive? And, you know, it's like, these are so, so ingrained in me and, and I guess in, in all of us in terms of how to approach projects and science, you know, half reality and half Star Trek was really kind of interesting at the time that we've all kind of developed this, this mindset of everything is achievable if you work at it and you get the correct pieces there. And that, that came out of this whole, you know, 1960s mindset, you know, of, 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 of the Apollo missions. I agree with you, David, because it was the driver in a lot of respects to, you know, innovation. Now, we're, we've been in this innovation now for, you know, over 100 years, you know, if you go back to Henry Ford, the whole, but this was like taking it to the technology electronics. And I think it was really inspirational for a lot of people to see, boy, that was a really hard problem that just got solved. We can probably do a lot more, right, with the technology that's been being developed, chipsets, processing, you know, et cetera. And that, that was just the tip of the iceberg, but boy, what a, what an effort to go after. Yeah. Right. So, so grounding that conversation to kind of where we are today and what we do today, um, you know, the, the, the Apollo 11 had black and white images from the moon live going across with that much of a delay going that far over. Apollo 12 was supposed to have color, but um, I'm going to forget the name of the astronaut, which gets me upset um, that that accidentally aimed it into the sun. So the, the tube was burned, but to, you know, the, the idea of where real time communications has come from that Apollo landing to now, and that's the business that we're in. Just think about what we've lived through in that era from like the 1990s through to the early two thousands. Remember ISDN, you know, uh, 2B plus D times four and making those connections work with an NTU and, and, you know, and, and then, then we started using, you know, IP connectivity and, what, and, what's and sad, Dave is that, that we do remember ISDN. <laughs> all three of us. It's, well. it's, 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 it's terrible what we had to live through. And, and then, you know, um, we're now in the area era and I'll bring it over, you know, to, to more modern cases where just in the last two years alone, we've talked about getting rid of the pan tilt zoom camera. We're now doing EPTZs everywhere. No more motors um, where, you know, we're now talking about really high quality video of the public over the public internet. You know, we're not talking about these expensive exchanges that popped up in the early two thousands. Now we're able to punch, you know, pump, you know, one K two K, you know, really high quality video streams just over you know hey my home you know i'm using the uh, verizon fios for this right now you know and, and it's very high quality stuff um what's gone on with with ai the ability of, for cameras to track and understand who's speaking and recognize faces um you know microarrays you know what was a microarray i mean they've existed for years nobody talked about them this idea of this beam forming capability where you can i mean the changes that have happened in our space just in the last couple of years are almost like what's been going on with this moonshot and i guess you know if i think about it it kind of came out of this whole democratization era this idea that you don't have to put in a million dollar system or half million dollar system or even a forty fifty thousand dollar system we're doing video off of our phones casey as you pointed out things that have more powerful processing than we use to get to the moon um, and it's interesting to be living in these times and see all the changes right in front of us and kind of relate it to that same explosion of technology uh, do you guys feel that way when you go through this yeah, yeah I mean I, I'll start but it's a uh, I mean the the supply chain of the what's happened on the smartphones and the portable devices has really changed you know almost everything that we've done it's you know we started with really kind of high-end chipsets and DSPs and and uh, you know, built pretty expensive, dedicated appliances toward that. And and you know, today, 
even the EPTZ cameras, the optics, the sensors, you know, the SOCs, I mean, are all all being driven, you know, by these these little devices that we carry around with us almost everywhere. And there's just this, you know, if there's a problem with it, it's a problem of addiction. You know, I mean, it's, you know, if you, it's, uh, I'm, you guys have all read the same stuff I have, you know, where, you know, we're using these devices, you know, six, six plus hours a day. And uh, they're just incredible devices, you know, that, that create all different kinds of use cases. But it's, it's a, uh, I mean, I, I used to give a presentation uh, that I haven't in a long time about kind of the state of where video compression is and, you know, kind of the, the history of that. And, you know, back, there used to be kind of two different paths. One were proprietary codecs, then one were standard-based codecs like H.261, 263, et cetera. But I had the opportunity to kind of live in both worlds. And at Apple, you know, we were clearly on the proprietary uh, codecs that we developed ourselves because we could make them run on general purpose processors which was pretty unique at the time, you know, back in the, you know, you know, 1990, 1991. And, and my son was born in 1991, and, and uh, it was just a couple days before we shipped the beta CD of QuickTime. And, and there were five clips that ended up on the beta, on the beta CD, you know, CD, you know, going, you know, dating ourselves back to the kind of media that we used to use. But, but these were, uh, you know, they were, uh, you know, 160 by 120 playing at five frames per second. Uh, nothing like it before, everything like it since. It was, you know, took up, you know, 600 kilobits per second. And uh, those clips are still playable today, you know, over, you know, 25 years later, which I think is pretty phenomenal, um, you know, in this age of kind of digital decay of, you know, media uh, subsystems. But, you know, then you look at, you know, Sorensen codecs that were, you know, twice the resolution at half the bit rate, then you got, then there was this convergence towards standard-based codecs and H.264, being able to do HD video at one megabit, 4K video at you know under two megabits, and it's just it's just and, and you go back to pull it back to the space station where you know this telemetry of data, you know they were doing real-time communication all the way up to the moon, you know, so it's it's uh, it is quite shocking and and I mean it's it's effortless to pull out a smartphone today and do a FaceTime call to my family. It's effortless to, to use a really high-end enterprise video communication system, and you know to kind of pull these parallels back to the science that really kind of uh, started you know decades ago is really kind of fun to look at. Agree completely, Tim. Any any uh, thoughts from you on that? Well, yeah, I I think that you know the point Casey's you know hitting on here is that it's the standardization of the architectures which is really going to drive you know mass volume of usage and also availability, right? I mean, we've talked about, you know, the early days of PictureTel, there's so many chips in, in that those products that the trick was, you know, getting it all to work, right? So a huge amount of engineering effort was put put into, you know, distributing the processing across, you know, a variety of different processors and then the bus interfaces and just connecting everything together and then making it work over, you know, what was fundamentally an unstable network. Uh, all that now, you know, has changed in a lot of respects. So a lot of the, the, the what were the difficult hurdles of early early video communication are have been replaced with, you know, you know bandwidth. So bandwidth helps all things, right? Uh, but also the processors now, and it's that smartphone architecture model of you don't necessarily need three or four or five or twenty chips to get to where we need to get to. It's starting to be Single processor architectures are more than enough horsepower to deliver what is a great experience for your your typical user, 
And now, and that's to me, I see the tipping point with video. It's starting to get to the area where it's, the cost profile is no longer an issue, right? The networks are there, right? The connectivity models are there. Uh, the costs of the services can be very attractive approaching telephony, right? Most, most telephony services are free today. Uh, you pretty much get it with your bandwidth at your in your consumer space or in your company, and now so the video is get, going in that direction from a connectivity perspective, and then it really becomes an endpoint. You know what are the form factors? What are the verticals? You know all that you know uh, transpiring from you know let's connect up to the moon to now let's just connect everybody and make it super easy all the time. Uh, and I think it just continues to explode. It's super exciting. We talked about this a little bit earlier uh, off the call. It's super exciting to see finally after 20-something years that the whole video experience is everywhere. We're, we're, you know, this is just ingrained in the workflow. Uh, you know, the numbers that we all hear from uh, some of our largest customers and the minutes they're doing is just mind-boggling. Compared to it's where, where we've always promised it could be. You know, the the, the it really is. The ads for those picture tell systems that were in the airplane magazines that talked about it was just like being there. It's taken us, I don't know, 20, 30 years, but actually now finally it is just like being there. So, you know, it's <laughs> it like is. I love to have lived through the fact that we actually met the promise of uh, video everywhere. And and I guess I'll ask you guys, kind of take out your crystal balls here and, and you know, think about the Dustbuster and think about Velcro and think about um, um, space blankets. And what are we going to start seeing in our space as these future technologies creep into our products and other people's products and, and, and the nature of what we do as a business changes around collaboration? What do you, where do you guys think it's going? Well, I'll take a. Do you want to go first? I'll, I'll take a stab at it. I mean, it's. I mean, today it's. Uh, well, first of all, there's over fifty for the first time ever. Over fifty percent of the world population is connected to the internet. So there's this. There's this network effect, you know, that you need to have people to talk to, you know, uh, you know, to kind of validate the technology that you're building. So, so that's kind of a you know check on you know check on that one. Um, we talked about. We talked about EPTZ cameras and these, you know, again coming out of the, the smartphone supply chain, these these sensors that are very very high dense density sensors, very very good optics, um, very good SOCs that can process this. So we're definitely going to see less mechanical PTZ cameras and a lot more of these really small form factor cameras that we can actually you know mesh them together and have lots of these cameras you know in space that. That can work and coordinate, you know, uh, together to create, you know, a better experience for for our users. The but the two the two things I think that are kind of the mega trends, at least for me, are you know just the culture of collaboration and the behavior that we have and the places that we work, you know, are changing. That are really it's, it's almost like it's this perfect intersection between the technology and then kind of the behavior of the of the users today. So. You know, there's so many people that I think it's something in the 60, 70, 80 percent, you know, kind of range of people that will work remotely because the tools are just so great. You guys today, I mean, both of you guys are, I think Tim is up in Maine. I think, you know, David, you guys are both at home offices. I'm actually came into the office today. But, you know, this is just off of your home Internet, you know, that we're able to do, you know, business class, you know, type of collaboration. 
So people can work anywhere. They, the, the spaces that we work in in the enterprise are smaller rooms. They're open offices. They're you know the you know it's people are just as likely to take a, a video call at an airport lounge or you know, Starbucks you know coffee shop. The the friction to get into these calls is just so low today. So I think that there's this behavior change and some of its demographics and you know kind of the, the people that are coming you know the younger people that are kind of coming into the market that are just kind of demanding it. The other one is around if there's a technology point, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, you know, a, a lot more. But I mean, for me, this this advent of machine learning and deep learning, these new tools that we can put into our toolkit to, you know, to uh, to analyze data both at the edge as well as you know in the cloud, you know, to create better insights, better user experiences directly for our customers, you know, better understanding of of how people are using systems. I mean, those. Those two things, culture, behavior, and then also the technology on the deep learning side, are going to uh, you know allow us this toolkit to create just very very differentiated products. Yeah, well, I'll debate one thing that you said there. While I agree with 99% of it, um, I think there is still quite a bit of friction when it comes to understanding how to collaborate amongst people that aren't us, that aren't the technology geeks that grew up with NASA. So when you have the when you have the uh, the average person and they need to start a meeting, they'll either go to their desk or they'll pick up their mobile or they'll walk into a room, and many times they don't know where to start. There might be an outdated touch panel in the room that half of them are afraid to touch. Um, you know, maybe they'll go in and they'll, they'll sit in a room that's meant to use one type of conferencing, but the brand they've been invited to isn't compatible. So I think the friction is still something we need to work on. How do we coordinate people's um, itinerary and activities so we know we're all available and we know when the right time to meet is. How do we find the room or the space? How do we pick the platform? And how do we make sure that it works? I mean, if you're in a, you know, a brand A shop and everything is brand A and you get an invitation from another firm, which is a brand B component, how do you join that call? You know, do you have to get your IT people in the room? Those, I think, are some of the problems that will be solved by some of the machine learning and AI that we've been talking about going forward. And I think it's really a requirement that we do that um, in order to really get to the next level. Yeah, I think that uh, Tim can chime in on this too. But uh, but I think that so there's that's a problem that is exists for us, and it exists for us and you know kind of the space that we work in. I mean, there uh, my friends who are not technology friends have no problem at all, you know, uh, doing a FaceTime call between between themselves or you know between themselves or a family or whether it's duo or whatever. They have no problem, you know, creating a one trillion images that, you know, get get done per year, you know, on on uh, Instagram. They have uh, they have no problem sharing those those you know that data. So I mean I think that that problem is 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 true definitely for us to solve. I mean if you're in a vertically kind of integrated uh, shop, you know that problem doesn't doesn't exist. But it's it, the dynamics I think are very interesting to look at. You know, in the place where we go into an enterprise call, if you walk into this unknown conference room, you're a vendor. You just kind of walk in, you're, and and you're also uh, you know trying to you know sell a significantly large deal to these people. You're going to be almost fearful to kind of take it you know take uh, take the the helm of using their AV equipment. You know, so you don't know what it is. You don't know how to to, to use it. You're going to stay away from the you know anything that you know generates that call, but but I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, I'm driven, you know, I'm driven by this. You know, at, at work, I'm driven by this. And inside this, I'm driven by my calendar. And I, 
I should be able to go into any conference room around the world, and whether it's you know Blue Jeans or Zoom or 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 Meet or Chime or Log Me In or anything, I should be able to just touch on something, and and the experience should just automatically you know kind of work you know fit in and stand out as one way we've talked about it in the past of of this thing should just be uh, effortless for me to get into, and that's that's our problem to solve, and I think there's huge value in us being able to solve it. Yeah, and I think it's coming. I think we're, you know, we're within two years away. And and regardless of which platforms you use, which ones you like, which brands, which providers, I think we're going to see that whoever solves that problem is going to take the lead in the space. Um, and that that's definitely a challenge for all of us out there. Uh, Tim, what what are your th thoughts on this? Where do you see? Yeah, I, I mean, to I, I agree with that. That the heartburn I see, which is uh, around the technology transition in the industry, has a little bit to do with the non-standard uh, approach that many uh, many of the service providers have taken. So the, you know, there, it, you know, for years it was driven, and we had SIP, and we had 323, and it was standard-based interop, and a lot of energy was put towards making sure that even our products could work with other competitors in the market. The hardware now is that, you know, none of the real vast players are standard based. They're all they've all gone proprietary in their signaling and their communications and they're all islands. So we're gonna go back in time a little bit to having to make sure that those islands are communicative across yeah, of their users. Right. So that's that's unfortunate. I think WebRTC did a good job of trying to solve that. It just never kind of got there hundred percent. It'll be interesting to see if that does get that digested as the common mechanism that all of the you know, UC vast players end up going into, uh, but that's probably a future looking you know as to how the market plays out. Uh, but right now we know right it's all they're all islands and we're trying to you know make technology that bridges the islands. But that's that's always difficult because now you're chasing multiple applications and trying to keep up with an infrastructure that's doing features across the board uh, for everybody, which is a you know hard thing to do for any company. Um, I think that the you know in the big scheme though, the exciting part is just the fact that the, the proliferation is there, the workflows are there. Right? Videos become a commonplace uh, community, the UC applications, a commonplace model for virtually all companies uh, between education and medical and large enterprises, and that's not going to change, right? There's, no, there's there's no going backwards, right? That that commitment happened. People are using it on a day-to-day -day basis, and it's driving. It's, what I think is interesting is driving a change in the environment of uh, the enterprise. Right. More people are working at home now because they simply can do that and have a great experience communicating with their fellow employees. Right. So you're starting to see smaller conference rooms because there's a need to have these small, what we're calling huddle room in the industry, is these small rooms where a few people can go in and have calls with the people working at home quickly in a, in a sort of an ad hoc fashion rather than everybody's in the office so now we need a room that sits at least eight because everybody's got to be in the room for the meeting well now if five people are working from home and there's only three people in the office 
it's a lot easier just to go jump into small space and have a and have those calls. And on so top of that, the office it's, itself is smaller because you don't need to cost spend as much money on real estate. Um, and and not only is the company saving money, but because I'm working from my basement here in New Jersey, I'm not commuting into Manhattan, so that's an hour there and an hour back. That's two hours a day I get back that I can actually right. be more productive. If I have to pick up my kids from school. I didn't lose the day. I can go do that and come back home. There, it's, it's such a win-win-win that this technology and the way we've started to use it has completely changed the culture. It really has. I mean, it, and, and I think as you go forward, you know, three, four, five years, and even some of the you know design architects as they look at the spaces, you know, the open spaces coming in with a whole ton of small offices that people can go in and use, come out quickly if they need a if they need a, a private space or they need to have communication with people that are working uh, externally. Uh, but that's a much easier environment to, to develop from a business perspective, right? And uh, that's that's just you know this a part of the changes in in the in the that the technology is driving. And I think as it gets smarter, as Casey was talking about the artificial intelligence and the integration of of, of predictive information, you know, our, you know, it's stuff that we're looking at doing and integrating, you know, just counting the number of people in a room, right? We, we both hear this as a, as a request from a lot of IT organizations, just to know their, the resource uh, usage model, right? How effective are those rooms? Uh, on and off calls, right? Just in general, right? So now you start to see uh, sensors, which fundamentally microphones and cameras are, uh, uh, give, being able to give more information back to the IT organizations and let them manage their businesses in a more effective way from a space perspective, but also just uh, usage uh, within, the, within the rooms. And I think you're gonna to start to see that leak into uh, other vertical markets, you know, legal, uh, healthcare, um, you know, as AI starts to get smarter, awareness of the patients and using the video and audio and being able to analyze and help assist and the analysis, you know, all that stuff just going to continue to to add to the effectiveness of you know, either the employee or the doctor or the nurse or the or the little lawyer, you know, et cetera. Uh, you know, just more information that gets uh, digested in the cloud and, and uh, models that get compared to it, and now you can give more options back in real time. I think we're living in some real exciting times for our space, and I think the parallel between what was done as we tried to get from the Earth to the Moon with what we're doing right now in terms of the technology is real. Um, I'd certainly recommend, um, if you haven't seen that series, by the way, the HBO series, From the Earth to the Moon, you should definitely take a look at that on demand or grab the DVD. If I'm, if that, is that a dating myself thing? I'm not even sure if it is anymore, but definitely definitely take a look at that because it kind of gives you a feel of what it was like to grow up in those times. Also, uh, you know, one I'd recommend if it's still on Amazon is is uh, uh, how William Shatner changed the world, which is, again, this idea of science fiction and projects and how these technology pieces just start to creep into what we're really doing, you know, and making the next, you know, communications device and the next intelligent computing device. It's, uh, it's really exciting to have grown up as an engineer in these times, and we still have some exciting years ahead of us, thank goodness. So uh, I'll give you guys the last word. Uh, um, Casey, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, how, uh, how would they reach out to you and any other thoughts on this before we close out? 
Well, I mean, professionally, you can certainly use my email address, kc.king at poly.com. I mean, I'm on Twitter at kcwsj. Uh, you know, if you want to find me, I'm on LinkedIn. I mean, there's lots of different, a lot, a lot of different, different ways to to get a hold of me. I do want to, I do want to just kind of close at least with my comments with just you know one last one last thought, and it's, I mean, we we build the world's simplest application. I mean, once you get into a call like this, we just we just talk to each other, and I mean, people have had you know for for since the beginning of mankind, I mean, we live around telling stories, and increasingly we're using images and video to kind of tell those stories in a more effective way. And when you look back at you know the the 60s and with, when Kennedy came out and said we're going to put a man on the moon in this decade, you know, it's going to be about you know your service of what you can do to your country, you know, instead of you know what your country can do you know can do for you. Um, he painted this just beautiful picture. This beautiful story that allowed a lot of people to kind of rally behind that and do something just incredible. So what I'm really hoping for, and I mean, all of us are certainly passionate about you know video collaboration and audio collaboration and you know and just data collaboration. But you know, how do we use these new technologies, new technologies and behavior changes to actually improve these communication skills? And that's what I think is what we can. You know, machine learning is great. It's a tool and a toolkit. You know, it's it's what we do on top of that to abstract that out into these you know, larger, bigger kind of behavior changes. So, so that's what I'm super excited about, you know, doing at Poly to you know, kind of move, move that along for the next few years. Terrific. Thank you, Casey. Tim, how do people get a hold of you and any last thoughts from you? Yeah, great day. First of all, uh, uh, super uh, my, my excited and my pleasure to work with both of you. Uh, it's been, uh, you know, only a short window of time, but I, I really have enjoyed it so far, and I hope we continue to do it for a long time together. Um, so my uh, my contact again, uh, Tim Root at poly dot com is my is my work. Uh, I'm also on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, that's probably the easiest way. Also, track me down online. Uh, on on uh, just look me up, Tim Root at Poly, and you'll find me. Um, so my closing uh, thoughts here is, you know, th that this 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 uh, industry is still still just in its baby stages. Uh, the products that are going to start to come out with uh, different form factors and connectivity and and vertical market applications around this communication technology that really is really it's been the last five years that there's been this massive transition. And the value proposition and the integration and quality—it's uh, just super exciting, right? That we are literally on the cutting edge of probably the early days in the '60s when they were figuring out, boy, this is possible. We are in the stages of this is possible. That this that this uh, uh, industry and this technology is going to be everywhere and be fundamental to everyone's life. If it's not all already with many people, it's only going to explode. Uh, and get further and further entrenched into how we live our days, our lives. Uh, so that's just exciting to be part of. So. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Casey. I really appreciate it. Um, I mean, my thoughts parallel all of yours. I think this is one of the most exciting times to be in our industry where technology is going up, where costs are plummeting, um, what it's going to cost you to put in a room codec compared to what it would have cost, you know, even three, four, five years ago. Uh, some major disruptive things on the on the horizon, and uh, I'm excited to be part of it and, and, and excited to be able to work with you guys and a lot of our new colleagues as we uh, pull all this together. So uh, I'm going to let that be the last word for, uh, for AV Nation TV and 
and for my colleagues at the IMCCA. I'm David Danto. You guys know how to reach me. Just Google my name. It's all over the damn internet. You know that. Um, and until the next time, thanks very much for <clears throat> thanks very much for joining us. And I'll see you next time. Bye.